If you could take your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke, book of Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, and I will uh, pray. Lord, thank you for this time. I ask that we would uh, have our hearts and, and minds in your word here, that your spirit would work it to our benefit. Amen. Luke 4, chapter, uh, Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian." When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. You may be seated. At the beginning of Jesus' synagogue sermon here, the message was clear. God wants to heal. Messiah's mercy will be revealed to those who wait upon him. Mercy is going to be shown to the sick and oppressed and enslaved, to all who need it. Jesus was the bringer of this good news. He started um, his sermon by quoting the wonderful gospel of Isaiah. And it said up there, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then, subsequent to reading the text, Jesus told the congregation, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that sermon started out fantastic. In the room there's this anticipation What would happen next? Where is this all heading? The congregation, it seemed to want what Jesus was preaching. Really, I I don't know anyone who wouldn't want to be healed or, or released from captivity or liberated or given vision. I 
I don't know anyone. Or do I? If we're honest about it, I think sometimes we don't want to be healed or free. Sometimes because of our stubbornness, we resist the very things that would help us. Isn't that true? Some people are are prescribed a remedy, but they refuse it. They turn up their noses. They're told where to find the best physician to heal them, but they only want to go to their own doctor. I'm speaking metaphorically. They're told, drink this cordial and it will make you better, and they won't because they don't like the flavor of it. The problem with such an attitude, the problem with such an attitude is that God won't play along with it. Men and women don't get to dictate to God. They don't get to tell Jesus how he must grant mercy to them. You see, creatures don't make the rules. We only break them. Even with mercy, God decides when it is to be given. And we, we must sit at his feet and wait. Furthermore, it's a good idea to accept his evaluation of us. Oh, we must learn our place. We must learn our place in his world. God wants to heal, it's in his nature. Mercy will be shown. However, it's up to him when and where and how. And listen, he's still doing it. Jesus still tends to us. He still brings goodness. But but you and I, we need to keep ourselves out of the way. All right, leave room for God's mercy, his healing, his release. You have to quit thinking about yourself and how life should be a certain way. Life should be a certain way before you will accept it as goodness from him. You have to quit determining what form mercy must take in order for you to appreciate it. Instead, look for the Lord's mercy and goodness in your life. Begin to spot it. Count it and be glad for it. I get it. You may think you need ten minus, and he only gives you two. Thank him for the two. And then find a way, okay, find a way to appreciate that Jesus has reasons for withholding the eight. 
Thank him for the two and understand that he has reasons for withholding the eight. It's a bit like Pollyanna's glad game. Pollyanna book I had to read because of Atticus. I read it. But her father, this young Pollyanna, her father who had passed away taught her to play this game called the glad game. She was to find something to be glad about in every situation. No matter how challenging or negative it may seem. And so she was this little, delightful, optimistic orphan that everyone learned to fall in love with. But I'm not talking here about making believe things are good, faking it, in order to get by in life. Rather, I'm talking about believing in the one who loves you and intends to use all things for your good. This brings us back to Jesus' sermon and that other congregation in Nazareth. If you look at verse 23, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. What does Jesus mean when he quotes that proverb, physician, heal yourself? There's a few different views about about that. Some commentators think Jesus is predicting how his hometown congregation will refuse to accept his messiahship because they only think of him as that Jesus kid. As Matthew 13 passage, it's a parallel passage, says, they started talking, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are, are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him, it says. So that explanation of the saying, physician, heal yourself, is that people were going to think, why, hey, he's no different than us. He's no better than us. He needs mercy the same as anyone. Who does he think he is? In other words, Jesus was delusional and should take care of his own problem first. Physician, heal thyself. This first interpretation doesn't, doesn't seem to fit quite for me to capture the sentiment of the entire passage and the other gospel accounts of this sermon. So I moved on to the second explanation. The second explanation commentators come up with ties the proverb more directly to what follows in the next sentence, where it says, look there, what we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. Physician, 
heal yourself, right? What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In this case, physician heal yourself would mean, hey, take care of your own people too. All right? Do your miracles here, not just everywhere else, as if they were saying, you owe it to your own people. Physician, heal your own. Heal yourself. Third idea, and this is the one I, I kind of settle into myself. It meshes the, the two uh, concepts together somewhat. I find it's the most compelling. It suggests that the townspeople are saying, listen, Help yourself by doing miracles here in Nazareth the way you've done them elsewhere. It will give you credibility here. Maybe then we will believe in you. As if to say, make yourself more evident to us. Heal yourself. Position heal. I don't think it's an easy proverb to understand here in the context. Which brings me to the next point. He adds to the proverb this other statement. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And he says it as if it were a universal experience suffered by every prophet. Maybe it was. I didn't go back and look in each case. It does seem like it would be difficult to believe that God spoke to your neighbor, doesn't it? I mean, that is what a prophet is saying happened. A prophet is someone God speaks to directly through a vision or a dream. And God does it in order for that prophet then to share the message with people. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. You know what it sounds like when someone comes along and says, God told me such and such. Or, God showed me so and so. God led me. Those are significant claims. And people who use that kind of language should speak more carefully, I think. For God no longer gives new revelation to people since the New Testament has been received as his final word. There are no new prophecies or prophets or apostles. Okay, I I know. It's one thing for a person to say, God showed me, and simply mean this. Simply mean, I was reading the Bible and was convicted or encouraged or felt relief by some truth I found in it, or something a person said to me that re-imparted a scriptural teaching. God showed me. Okay, in that case, God shows things to all of us regularly. I've gotten sidetracked. My point is this. When a prophet was chosen by God to receive messages and speak them to the people, the people were not quick to believe 
him because they knew him as a neighbor or as a cousin or the village carpenter or the winemaker. And so their response would be something like, come on, how could it be that Jeremiah heard directly from God? Or you're telling me that your cousin Micah has gotten a vision from the Almighty? You get the idea. But then on top of it, your neighbor, the prophet, goes and preaches judgment against all of us for our many sins. So now, only is it hard to believe that Micah is a prophet, but he's all of a sudden also become annoying. Which adds actual disdain for him. Hence Jesus' words, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But by saying those words in this sermon, when everything started so glowing in the beginning, so promising in the beginning, when he says those words, Jesus suggests to his synagogue-filled townspeople that there is a hardness of unbelief in them. That they don't want to hear God's word. That brings me to point four. It's not, a, it's not a novel concept that God responds, and listen close, it's not a novel concept that God responds negatively toward people who have hard hearts. God judges against people because of stubborn unbelief. He withholds his mercy when people do not appreciate his graciousness. And that stands to reason, I think. If they've shut themselves off from him, they shut themselves off from his many gifts. Don't shut yourself off from him. It's like this, Christian. If God chooses to feed you with manna, then you should eat manna without complaint. If he decides to send quail, then eat quail and be content. If you don't want to accept manna and quail, then that's on you. Go ahead and starve. Don't blame God for refusing to feed you. So then if Jesus' miracles, all right, are being withheld from Nazareth, while they are prevalent in other areas of Galilee, do hear what you've done there, right? It might have to do with the fact that the Nazareth people were selfish. They won't experience mercy the way Isaiah foretold because they were hard-hearted. They wanted the mercy that was described, but they didn't want, but they wanted it on their terms. Hear that. They wanted the mercy that was described, but they wanted it on their terms, like a child who refuses a balloon because of its color. Now, 
where is this coming from? This indictment against the congregation's hardness might not be obvious in the text so far, up to this point at least. But there are two parallel uh, accounts of, of this sermon that I mentioned before. I'm going to read two little sections. One is Matthew 13. You find the same story. And beginning in verse 54, it says this, And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Hear that? Matthew thirteen fifty eight. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Yes. God makes judgments against people's stubbornly selfish unbelief. He withholds mercy when people have shut themselves off from Him. You don't want a yellow balloon? Then you get no balloon. Sometimes we're like little bratty children. In Mark 6, okay, that's the other account, it says in verses 5 and 6, And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Did you catch that? Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. What's that that like saying? He, He wanted them to believe and receive. He couldn't hardly imagine that they could be so unwilling. He marveled at their unbelief. Now, that is being committed to your own selfish ways, isn't it? Jesus wasn't refusing to give them gifts as much as they were refusing the gifts because of how they came wrapped. Point five. I believe your bottom line should be to accept from Jesus whatever he tells you of yourself. You should want what he wants. You should think of yourself as he thinks of you. If his words sound like an indictment against you, then let them slay you. If he offers hope, even at the surface, you should take it. You should want what he has for you, whether in sickness or in health, for better or worse, till death, when you enter a more glorious presence. We can be awfully, awfully presumptuous in this life. Presumptuous. To be presumptuous is to fail to observe the limits permitted to you. It is to fail to observe the limits permitted to you. 
It's to think and act really inappropriately, out of order. That's not your place to do that, to say that. It is to neglect to learn your place in life. Christians, Christians, stay in your lane. Don't get too big for your britches, whatever phrase suits you. This congregation in Nazareth was presumptuous. They had the Messiah of God teaching them, and they thought mostly of themselves, how it would benefit them, how it would affect them. What should you do when Jesus marvels at your hard heart? Just think of that. If right now he's marveling at your unbelief. Break, break that heart. For crying out loud, ask the Holy Spirit to soften you. That's really your only hope. You must not remain committed to yourself. You must not remain committed to yourself. Jesus proves the point that God is willing to show mercy to those looking for it while he withholds it from those who think they've got it all figured out. And this comes in the next verses. Beginning in verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Alright, so, he names two Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Both were bringers of good news and mercy to non-Israelites. Because judgment needed to come upon Israel. One was a widow living in Sidon, the other was a leper from Syria. Jesus begins with Elijah. Elijah preached God's judgment. At one point he preaches it to the king. And God tells him, now, get out of here. Scram. And he, and he leaves and he survives for a while in a dry and deserted place. And then he tells God, tells Elijah to go to Sidon. In particular to Zarephath. And that there would be a woman there, a widow, that he would need to care for. And so he goes. When he came to the gate of the city, it says, Behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. For the famine was there too. 
And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Next, Jesus refers to Elisha. There was a valiant commander that was a soldier and leader for the king of Syria, and that commander's name was Naaman, and Naaman was a leper. The Syrians had regularly oppressed the Israelites. Israelites didn't trust them a bit. I want to read from 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. And I'll do some paraphrasing here. But it says, Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. So there's this little Israelite girl living in the household of Naaman, serving Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So she's got advice. If only you could get to Elisha. He would, he would cure you. So Naaman gets together him, himself and goes and talks to the king and seeks permission. Seeks permission to go to the king of Israel and be healed. He packs his stuff, I think 10 days worth of traveling, where? And he heads out. And the king of Israel says, I can't. Fix this guy? What am I, God? How am I going to heal him? He's, he's, he's as good as dead. Lepers were expected to not last that long. But then in verse 8 of 2 Kings chapter 5, it says, But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And then listen to this. All right? Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. He didn't even go out there himself. Sent the messenger. Naaman is highly insulted. He says, why did I come here? I could have stayed. We got better rivers in Syria. I could have stayed there and gotten that. But this was the man of God talking to him, a true prophet. God had sent. And so Naaman's getting angry. It says he went away in rage. But then his servants came up to him. And his servants were wiser apparently, than Naaman was. And they said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, Wash and be clean. So they're, they're saying, Listen, this is, this is God's man. Do what he says. So he went down, 
Naaman did, and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored, like the flesh of a little child, it says, and he was clean. So the point that Jesus is making in his sermon is a point against unbelief, the unbelief of the people of his hometown. He was to fulfill Isaiah's gospel, but Nazareth would see little of it. Why? Because they had hard hearts like Israel of old. Jesus would do very few miracles for them because of this. And it shouldn't surprise them that God would deny them good things because of their self-centeredness. They will not be shown mercy because they don't truly want it unless it is given to them on their terms, not his. And that's unacceptable. There's a commentator, commentary written by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, and they say how the people of Nazareth, they, they knew, okay, that Jesus had chosen Capernaum as his new home, home stomping grounds, his new place of residence as he entered into public life. And so when he came up to Nazareth and gave no huge displays of his power as he did in these other distant places, it wounded their pride even more. It's too bad. It's too bad. Jesus would have liked to bring them good news and good things. But no, he he could only marvel at how stubborn they were. The last two sentences clearly illustrate this hardness in them. Their true colors show in in what we're about to see here. And this appears to be their tendency, right? It's their way. You, you, You put enough pressure on someone and that person's way does come to the surface. It does get revealed. Verses 28 and 29, when they heard these things, All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off, throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Incredible. Point seven. They needed to be released from the sin that enslaved them. They did not want that. They needed Jesus, miraculous healing touch, but they harbored ill will. You expect to be touched by God. Don't harbor ill will. No one is allowed to demand mercy. It must be given by another. Mercy is not deserved. It is a gracious act. It can be be asked for, but not while you harbor malice or some other secret sin. That's your greater need. This is the lesson of the book of James. James was Jesus' physical brother. One of them. He's the one who wrote the book of James. His brother. He grew up in the home of Mary and Joseph, too. 
And in his book, James, a follower of the Lord, constantly appeals to fellow Christians. He's constantly appealing to guard your hearts, be honest about things. Faith should have works. James' call to us is to be honest about our motives. And he gets to a point in James chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, he writes this, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You see, James got it too. He understood that the idea that a person would ask for the elders to lay hands and anoint with oil and pray is very much linked to the idea that there may be underlying sin causes for a person's illness. It's not always the case, but there is the possibility. And so the need for the confessing of sins and for the forgiveness being mentioned here as the elders come and lay hands on a person seeking healing is hugely important. Why else would you call for them to do this? We all know that we pray for one another in sickness, with broken, broken problem, problems, issues in life. Fellow congregants, we all pray. But this is a special, kind of ceremonial type of request that is designed to delve deeper. We want mercy. We want healing and release and liberty. However, it should not, it cannot be sought with fingers crossed behind one's back. God God does not honor that. And this is something Jesus knew about his hometown congregation. Which brings me to the final point. They didn't like Jesus' accusation of unbelief. Not at all. Their cold hearts became true devil hearts. They wanted to kill him. Verse 28 says they were filled with wrath. And in verse 29, they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. I said their hearts became true devil hearts because they turned turned right to doing the same thing Satan wanted to do to Jesus the minute he was born. It's the same thing the scribes and the Pharisees set out to do later, to rid the world of him. Jesus told his hearers once, you are, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Those people hated when he said that then, too. Just hated it. How can we kill him? Bad form, Nazareth. Hard hearts, unbelief, presumption. That's not the way guilty, sick, blind, and enslaved people find mercy. Jesus knows hearts. Don't have him marvel, please, don't have him marvel that he finds a hard one inside of you. The only way to mercy is by prayerful submission to God who rules over your entire life. But then it depends on His grace. You cannot demand mercy. You cannot expect it. You can only hope for it. And when it comes, you can be grateful for every drop, whether two minus or ten. Let's pray. Lord, I'd ask that uh, you would be merciful to us. That is the prayer request in in all areas of life, everywhere that we have the need for you to set us free, to heal us, to give us eyes that see, to liberate us. In all these things, Lord, you know us inside out. You know our hearts. I pray that we wouldn't have any finger-crossing, behind-the-back prayers when it comes to these things. We depend upon you. In your name we pray.